we see today kind of investors in the energy sphere, in the conventional energy sphere, oil and gas, for example. We see that companies have a greater confidence in terms of investing more in oil and gas. 27 days of conflict in Ukraine and the uncertainty around energy is building, with politics mattering more than ever for the outlook. Is this a reality check for markets? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is co-host and The National's future editor, Kelsey Warner. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. So, unbelievable scenes um, this week across markets, across energy. Probably the, the most significant of recent days has been the, the Saudi statement following the latest attacks by Houthi rebels in Iran and Saudi saying, you know, don't expect us to be responsible for supply. Then we also have the continuing issue of Russian supply and sanctions and, and, and the war and how that's affecting that, as well as general concerns about um, supply across the world and, of course, very, very high prices. So th- this is quite something now. We're in, we're in, you know, towards the end of March and we've been talking about energy all year and things are getting more uncertain, not less. More uncertain. We've been talking about the energy transition. We've been talking about energy. Prices have not really been much of the story, to be honest. But now prices feel like the story and it's a global story. It's a global issue now. To get an expert view on this, we spoke to Dr. Carol Nachler, who's the CEO of Crystal Energy, about why things are so uncertain and where we might go from here. Let's listen to that now. I'd love to get your point of view on on how you're gauging where we are, not just in terms of energy markets, but sort of the politics of energy at the moment with oil and gas. Is it a time when we should be quite worried about what the mechanics of supply and demand will be? I saw you tweeted, for example, that the IEA and OPEC's outlooks for demand were hugely different, which seemed like it's it's pretty much nobody knows what's happening. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. What we're seeing today is a great degree of uncertainty, which is translating into volatility in prices. Because we started the year before the war uh, in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened. We had what we call in economics terms, a tight market, which means that the demand was growing at a fast rate and supply was mainly catching up with that demand. So the market was very tight and that by itself can lead to upward pressure on prices. That's what we saw from the end of last year up until the beginning of this year. So in such a situation, any geopolitical developments that can affect major players in the industry. And here we're talking, for example, about Russia, which is the second largest exporter of oil after Saudi Arabia. So we had an event, a crisis, don't quite an event because it's something quite uh, unique. Uh, what happened recently in Europe since the World War II, then as a result, you had this kind of major geopolitical development that translated in massive uncertainty in the market. And as a result, we saw this big volatility in prices. Now, it's not the first time that we have prices reaching the levels that we saw at least at the beginning of March. They eased a little bit since, but they are going upward as we speak now. But it's just a question that the fact that it happened at the back of a major recovery 
recovery from another massive crisis that was caused by the pandemic. So put these two together, economics, fundamentals, what we call demand and supply, rapid recovery in demand, supply catching up slowly with, uh, with demand, plus geopolitical uncertainty with all the unknowns about how the situation is going to evolve from now, how much worse it can get, how much longer it's going to last. So all these are big questions that really nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. And that's why you see this kind of diverging views in the forecasts that are being published. It's just a reflection of the level of uncertainty we currently have in the market. And a level of uncertainty around timelines. So what you're outlining there is we were entering into a new year, tight market, then the war happens, unfold. We don't know what the timeline of that will be. So is the uncertainty based around timing alone or are there other peripheral factors outside of the Russia-Ukraine story that you're also paying attention to? We were raising questions earlier when the war started in Ukraine about how the Western powers are going to respond, whether they were going to impose sanctions that would tackle, that would affect energy exports from Russia, and how would Russia respond to these sanctions. But then a few weeks later, we saw that it was only the US and Canada a bit earlier, and then the UK joint forces, which implemented an embargo on uh, Russian oil supplies coming to the US. Um, And now today, what you have within the EU, there is this debate about whether to impose sanctions that would target energy supplies from Russia. So you have this big unknown, not just in terms of the war itself affecting and disrupting supplies from Russia, but also you have to what extent other countries are going to respond to the uh, increase or how the duration, the longer the war lasts and the more aggressive it becomes, I guess the diplomatic responses and the sanctions are going to be tight, uh, stronger and they will result in oil and embargoes and sanctions targeting energy supplies from Russia. But at the same time, you have to remember that this is happening at a time when we had inflationary pressure. We saw commodity prices increasing, and it's not just energy. Think about commodities that are mainly feedstock for food, like wheat or grains, such as corn as well. There we saw also a notable increase in prices. So if you add increase in energy prices, fueling further inflation, that can have negative impact on economic growth. And that's going to cause central banks to respond by tightening their monetary policy, as we already saw with the US Federal Reserve recently, and now they're announcing further measures. So it's not just you know limited to energy. It has much bigger repercussions on the macroeconomic scene and also on the living standards of many countries, particularly in the poorer world. In the Arab region, North Africa, for instance, there are major importers of grain. Egypt is the largest importer of uh, wheat, for example, in the world. So just imagine the economic burden that this is going to have on the Egyptian economy and the other economies in the region and elsewhere, and the impact on the average person in the street. So it's not going to be limited to energy only or to Europe only. It has much broader implications on the global economy. Yes, and there's this concern about how it might dampen the growth outlook. You know, while growth has come back since the pandemic, there are concerns that, you know, this year, next year, that because of rising prices, because of the energy crises, because of everything, sentiment that's going to be affected. But clearly what we need is, particularly for energy, is more investment and investment in the right areas. So, uh, you know, for example, LNG, um, you know, gas, uh, these, these infrastructure uh, projects that need to come online, they're very expensive, they need a lot of money. From your point of view, do you, do you see there being enough momentum 
uh, to get that investment on board, to get the, the capacity that we need? Or, or is it going to be a case of hesitation because of the uncertainty? And because, of course, we also are worried about emissions and global warming and, and other aspects. You have to go back to the basics of what drives investments. And if we talk about energy, definitely price signals and price expectations. So not just the prices at the moment, but where prices might go in the future. That is a major driver. But there is another element that is government policy. And here we have big uncertainty. So yes, we see today kind of investors in the energy sphere, in the conventional energy sphere, oil and gas, for example. We see that companies have a greater confidence in terms of investing more in oil and gas just a year after they were told, uh, if you remember, in uh, it was in May 2021 when the International Energy Agency published its flagship uh, report, Net Zero, a report by 2050. And they said that if you were to achieve the climate uh, ambitions that governments are setting around the world, then we didn't need to invest any more in oil and gas beyond what we had in 2021. And I think that was very short-sighted and a big mistake because the crisis we are facing today is definitely telling us something very different, that we need investment in oil and gas. And it is picking up. We are already seeing some governments changing. Uh, if you want position, look at the UK, for example. They want to support greater investment in the North Sea along their climate change agenda. Germany wants to import more LNG from countries such as Qatar. Um, so you see definitely, I mean, that what's happening today is more like a wake-up call that no, we are far from being free from our dependence on fossil fuel, particularly oil and gas, and we definitely need investment in this year. This price signal is there. What, we, what investors also need is policy certainty from major uh, countries which are rich in oil and gas uh, resources. Okay, but I also want to talk about the renewable story here. So where we've we've seen headlines now that this will spur Europe's efforts to increase renewables capacity. Is that what you're anticipating? Is that what you're seeing? And what can we look out for on that front? Europe is a very good example because they are perhaps the most aggressive region in terms of investing in a greener source of energy. And here I'm going to say renewable energy because nuclear is pretty controversial. I mean, they couldn't agree on whether it's, it qualifies as a, a green project or not. So if I look at renewable energy, such as solar and wind, definitely we heard official statements that the current crisis is going to push governments and investors to put more money in the renewable energy sphere. But here we have to be realistic because the more renewable energy you go to invest in, the more backup facility you need. Mind you, there is a lot of capacity of renewable energy available in Europe, but they could not save the day because you don't have the energy storage technology available out there to be able to collect the additional electricity generated from the sun when the sun is shining and use it when the sun is not shining or when the wind is blowing and then use it when the wind is not blowing. So that is the problem. The problem of intermittency or variability of renewable energy means that as long as we, we don't have the breakthrough in energy storage, the more renewable energy you're going to invest in, the more you have to think also about backup facilities, whether coming from nuclear or from fossil fuel, particularly natural gas, for example, because it emits the least CO2 emissions per kilowatt hour compared to coal or oil. And oil anyway is much less used in Europe for power generation. So here we have to be realistic and think about the energy transition more as needing investment across all the board of fuel, but I would like to leave coal out. I'm not a big fan of coal. 
coal, but definitely in terms of gas infrastructure, at least to provide the backup needed for renewable energy. And so you mentioned the green transition, and it was we talked about it a lot at the end of last year uh, on this podcast elsewhere in the national, and it was in the news because you had the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. The world agreed on, on actions to lower emissions to help with global warming. And it seemed that 2022 would be dominated by um, this discussion. Now, obviously, it hasn't been. Um, there's been other factors that have come through, not least worries about supply. But I've also seen some interesting news this week. For example, the UAE has done agreements with both Germany and Holland on hydrogen, which tells me that the green transition will continue to roll, even if it's not grabbing the headlines. Do you think that's a fair assessment? It is definitely a fair assessment because it's not like there was something that um, approved the energy transition was a big mistake. But the crisis that we are facing and the rise, a notable rise in energy prices, reminds us that maybe we should do it at a slower pace, at least in a way that we cannot just say that we don't need any more fossil fuel, but think about it in a more comprehensive way. And remember that the problems we are facing today are here and now, whereas we talk about the energy transition, it's something for the longer term. No energy transition happens overnight, not even in a few years. It takes decades. It's a long-term process. So, of course, you need to put um, all the capital that you have available for energy allocated in the right way to ensure the energy transition is moving ahead in the right direction. But you shouldn't forget the need, the pressing need of current generation, which is primarily having access to affordable, sustainable, reliable supplies of energy. And we are, again, I want to remind people that we are coming out of a major economic crisis. Add to that the high energy prices and just think about the economic burden on the average person in the street. I mean, in the UK, every week I'm receiving a notification about my bills rising, my electricity bill, my heating bill, my gas bill. I don't know what next. So that will have that will leave some scars on uh, on consumers and households. It's not going to deviate us. I look at the energy transition as if it's a train that already left the station. But the big question is at what speed and whether it's going to make the occasional stops here and there. Just to take into consideration the realities that we are facing today, the limitation in infrastructure, the limitation with renewable energy, the capital constraints, among others. I can go on and on with a long list, but we have to bring a certain degree of realism to the conversation as well. I want to talk a bit more about the supply story with you thinking about, I know you can't predict the future. You can't predict what the EU will decide on Thursday with regard to a crude ban. You don't know what's going to happen with Ukraine and Russia. You don't know what President Biden will decide to do. But all that said, we're sitting here now hovering around $110 crude, Brent crude. Will we see 140 again? Will we see 200? Will prices retreat? Where is the supply going to come from? Who are you paying attention to? And what's the price story? What's the supply story? that you're predicting? If I focus only on the supply, which is a bit like looking only at half of the story, because don't forget there is demand, which is perhaps more powerful in terms of responding to prices than supply. And there the unknowns are much bigger. But let me answer your question about the supply side. Already before the crisis started, you were expecting additional supplies coming from OPEC, but also from outside OPEC plus, primarily from the US. American shale surprised many people around because people thought that after the crisis that we saw in 2020, it was uh, the 
story of shale ended, but actually it proved everybody's wrong. And we're expecting maybe record levels of production coming from the US, if not this year, definitely 2023. So with the crisis that we have today and the massive increase in price, and also finally the support that the industry is getting from the Biden administration, uh, which has been shopping around for oil outside the US, whereas their own industry is setting on substantial reserves of uh, oil and gas. So the US, I think, is going to play an important role in terms of additional supplies, but also there are supplies coming from Norway, from Guyana, from Brazil. And these are not, apart from the US, these supplies are not happening because of the increase in price today. There is a long time lag when we talk about conventional, traditional oil. So they are the result of investment that was carried out many years ago, maybe six, seven years ago, and now they are coming to the market. So the kind of picture that we were expecting for this year, and I would say the increase in price would accelerate primarily additional supply from the US. But add to that another unknown that is Iran. Negotiations with Iran, currently they have been frozen, they've been put on hold because of Russian demands, but we were getting too close to signing a deal, you know, between Western powers and Russia as well and Iran. And that could bring to the market additional barrels. The, the estimates here vary because really nobody knows exactly how much Iran was, has been selling oil despite the sanctions, but the estimates can vary. They can be another million, 1.3 million barrels a day between the, the announcement of the deal and the end of the year. So that's the story on the supply side. Dr. Carol Nakle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and we hope to have you back again soon. Inshallah. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for today. Kelsey Warner, thank you so much. Thank you. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison, Ayesha Khan, and Mahmoud Ridder. Thank you all for listening.